0: Welcome to Real Talk with Deb and Nia. We're a mother-daughter podcast having real straight-to-the-heart talks on topics such as relationships, self-awareness, education, spiritual well-being, mindset, and even entrepreneurship. I'm Deb, the mother. And
1: I'm Nia, the daughter. Join us weekly as we share our perspectives, tell our stories, and talk to experts all designed to help you live
0: your best life fully and boldly. As a friendly reminder, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and also on Google Podcasts. So make sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss out on the fun.
1: Welcome back everyone. It's another beautiful day and another beautiful week. And we have an equally amazing episode for you today. Uh, with everything that is going on in the world right now, it is easy, really easy to get discouraged or depressed, uh, top that with a list of things that are coming up in your personal life, whether it be financial issues, relational issues, marital issues, work issues, or even dealing with the loss of a loved one. Uh, Sometimes there's just a little voice in your head that tells you to just stay in bed, (laughs) to close the blinds and let the world pass by, and that there's no reason to continue. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's just no hope. But there is. There is hope. Not only have we made it through to the other side numerous times. (laughs) That's what I am about to say. (laughs) Many times. There have been many tunnels. Um, But others have too. Some of our past guests like Dr. Kathy Mathis, Janet Grace Nelson, and Beth McGill, and even Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. They have all gone through things um, in periods of times in their life where the card seemed so stacked against them uh, that there was just no possible way that they could break free. But they did. And we did. And uh, with every single one of them, they found love, they found purpose, and they found joy. Uh, And they didn't just find it on the other side, they found it on their journey to the other side. So the two of us really love shining a light and giving people a chance to share their stories with the world in hopes that someone, just one person out there, is able to get the encouragement they need or the support they need or even just the assurance that they need
0: to know that peace and joy does come in the morning. It does. And today with us, we have a guest who is now added to our incredible roster of Real Talk guests. And he has an inspiring story of thriving through. And he did so while incarcerated. And we know that this is not an easy topic, but we think hearing it is worth all of our time. Today's guest's story is one of redemption and just might have you believing in miracles. But before we introduce him, I'd like to set the table. So you'll understand why we think this is such a crucial conversation. So let me share a few statistics. Set the stage, communicator. I will set the stage. (laughs) Um, In a typical year, about 600,000 people enter prison. However, people go to jail over 10 million times each year. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan Prison policy organization that, according to them, produces cutting edge research to expose the broader harm of mass criminalization and then sparks advocacy campaigns to create a more just society. So, you need to understand that the United States does not just have one criminal justice system. Instead, we have thousands of federal, state, local, and tribal systems. And together, these systems hold almost 2 million people in 1,566 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 2,850 local jails, 1,510 juvenile correctional facilities, those house our children. 186 immigration detention facilities and 82 Indian country jails, as well as in military prisons, civil commitment centers, state psychiatric hospitals and prisons in the U.S. territories. That's a lot of people. So this group, they gather statistics and do the research that assists advocacy groups in their efforts to create beneficial policy initiatives because something has to change. Here's a good question. How many of these are our children? Well, according to the ACLU, on any given day, nearly 60,000 youth under the age of 18 are incarcerated in juvenile jails and prisons in the United States. Let that sink in for a minute. The National Juvenile Justice Network says that currently an estimated 250,000 youth are tried, sentenced, or incarcerated as adults every year across the United States. We're talking about young people whose brains have not attached. They do not have the same cognitive ability and therefore real responsibility for behavior that adults have. So roughly half of all youth arrests are for theft, simple assault, drug abuse, disorderly conduct, and curfew violations. And theft is one of the greatest causes of youth arrests. So the ACLU, for those that don't know, the American Civil Liberties Union, um, says the United States still incarcerates more young people than any other country on our planet. For those of you that might be wondering what actually happened during the pandemic to prison and jail populations, well, they went down. First year, they were significantly reduced Number dropped 15% during 2020, and the jail populations fell even faster. They were down 25%. Unfortunately, the changes were largely due to the pandemic-related slowdowns in the criminal legal system, and those numbers have rebounded back to pre-pandemic levels. So this is no doubt a problem for our country, and while we won't pretend to have solutions, we believe it starts by asking better questions. So today, we are going to hear One perspective, and if you could hear the excitement in my voice, it's because it's there. Um, (laughs) On juvenile crime and motivators from someone who was convicted at the age of 16 and spent decades incarcerated. Now, if
1: this thought makes you uncomfortable... Please hang in there with us. There is so much more to this story. Uh, It is one of the resiliency of the human spirit, redemption and proof that change is not only possible, but that it can result in a positive ripple effect that could have exponential benefits. And we'll chat about some conversations that we might have with all of our young people as well. And while most of us might never face jail or prison, we think and feel that Jamal's story is a powerful reminder that no matter what circumstances we're facing in life, we have the power to change ourselves, which leads to a world of new possibilities. So with that, I'd like to welcome our new guest and new friend, Jamal Allen, author of The Transition Education Over Ignorance.
0: So welcome. Thank
2: you very much. A round round of applause is going off.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. I appreciate for y'all having me and, you know, allowing the perspective.
0: Well, I think that you have a very, very powerful story to share and a lot of wisdom as well. So, thank you for joining us. What so, welcome. What is your story? In your book, you talked about feeling there was a time when you were younger where you felt larger and puffed up, and then you felt hardened. Um, you talk about not being absent a moral compass, but you talked about your perspective of right and wrong, and your, you know, your own internal trial and error coming to that. So, if you could just set the stage for us a little bit about how you came to be incarcerated, but take us further back in the story, you as a, a young
2: teen. Okay, so I'm from West Philadelphia. I was born in 1976. Growing up in the 80s, I believe I was, as the majority of other kids in my neighborhood, all the way up until about when the crack era hit. When the crack era hit. I was introduced to drugs and the ways in which people that started selling drugs in my neighborhood began having money. And kind of like around the same age, I realized that I didn't have what other people had. I didn't How have. old were you? I was probably 8 or 9, about 8 and 9, because wow. okay, at 8 and 9, I'm going to say when I first started feeling insecure in life before I even knew what insecure was, I just knew I started feeling inferior. I started feeling inferior as a person. My mom tried to send me and my brother to the schools outside of our neighborhoods, believing that they would provide a better education. So we were so-called sent to the white schools. Now, almost an hour and a half just to get to school in the northeast part of our neighborhoods. I started noticing what the white kids had that we didn't have. I didn't realize how important and or simplistic it was until later in life. I just realized that I was a have-not. I wasn't one of the haves. We talk about from things as simple as fruit roll-up candies and um, Capri Sun lunch boxes to having a you know a few dollars in their pocket to be able to buy some cheese curls and ice cream. That started making me feel inferior when I had to go get lunch tickets. And it was like, I got to stand in line to get lunch tickets which prior to those years never mattered, I now started being embarrassed that I had to stand in line to get lunch tickets because for some people, it was an option. They got lunch tickets so they can have the lunch if they wanted to have it based upon the school making something that they like. But for me, it wasn't an option. It was you either eat it or you don't, you either get the tickets or you don't eat. So being teased by my friend, it was normal, but it bothered me. It was normal, but it bothered me. So when the crack era happened and I became cognizant of it, it became an easy way to now start having a few dollars in my pocket. And the few dollars only was really lunch money, money to show off around some of my friends. And it started off by me doing something as simple as standing on a corner and yelling out the type of drugs that were sold there. So my job was to just stand there and yell out gold tape, killer weed and capsules. That's it. Let's say if I stand on the corner where I'm hanging out already for eight, nine hours a day sometimes after school, on the weekends. But if I'm standing there anyway to now walk back and forth and just yell this out, the guy is putting $10 in my hand. He's putting $20 in my hand. This happened really when I was probably 10 years old. So this was 86 when I started getting $10, $20 just for standing out there yelling out gold tape killer weed capsules. But having that $10, $20 started to build my self-esteem. It started to build my confidence. And the things I started seeing that was happening on the corner started to shape the way that I thought life was supposed to be. These guys that I was seeing that started having the money and what I felt was the respect and what I felt was the crazy attitudes. They had the, I'll whip you behind disposition. I'll shoot you disposition. When I started seeing that, I don't want to say shock. It became so commonplace that it quickly became normal. So by the age of from 10 to 11, by 11 now, it's normal for me. It's normal to see all of the stuff that was abnormal to others, but normal to me. But in my normality, it felt special because they didn't allow all the 10 years old. When I say they, I'm talking about some of the guys on the corner, some of the older guys. They didn't allow all the 10 and 11-year-olds to do the stuff I was doing. They was only allowing certain ones to do it. So I felt kind of privileged to be amongst one of the certain ones that it's like, yeah, you get to be out here doing this instead of the ones that they would tell, man, get out of here. you too young for this, or you don't want none of this life, or you don't want what's going to come with this. And I'm looking like, okay, well, I'm special to be out here with the crazy people doing the crazy stuff. I mean, granted, I didn't know it was crazy back then, but back then, just to be a part of the chaos, it felt beautiful. I always had stories to tell when I talked about it to my friends in schools because their home lives were so different. Their home lives was they get out of school, they go home, they do their homework, they might play a little bit and come to school the next day. I'm telling them about street stuff, I'm telling them robberies, I'm telling them somebody got beat up, I'm telling them we stole a bike, I'm telling them uh, we ran in the store and somebody snatched somebody's pocketbook, but then we went and beat them up because we knew who mom that was. And now me getting that attention made me wanna gravitate towards the streets even more because I was Mr. Popular, I was Mr. Popular. Let me
0: pause you there for a minute. You talked about, you know, you're avenging somebody beating up somebody's mom. And it made me think, where was your mom? Because I'm mom, uh, Nia couldn't have been on the street, right? Like she, she wasn't going to be on the street. And, and if she had $10, $20, money was appearing or things were appearing, I'm wanting to know where's that money coming from. So what's mm-hmm. happening there?
2: My mom was on again, off again with drugs. Mm -hmm. So my mom was part time worker. She never was full time invested in anything. And when I say anything, I'm throwing it under the umbrella of almost anything out of life that comes with a work ethic, comes with a sacrifice, comes with a certain level of discipline. She had a very blase attitude to life and she had an on and off again boyfriend. i reference referenced him in my book because he was the predominant male figure in my life at that time. I refer to him as my stepdad, although they was never married. He got hooked on the stronger drugs. He got hooked on crack. This dude was like, As a 46-year-old man, now he was the epitome of a bum. He was a slug. Like he had a million and one excuses for why the world was against him. He had a million and one reasons of why he couldn't get a job and keep a job. He had a million and one scapegoats for why is he not a good father? Why is he not just an everyday stable man? He was full of BS. He was full of BS. So by her being more focused on their relationship, which was always turbulent. Although she was present mentally and emotionally, she was absent. And then my mom was very inconsistent with life. She wasn't like a crackhead strung out to the point that she never put food on the table or nothing. She just was a person that Monday and Tuesday, she had a well-rounded disposition. Wednesday and Thursday, she standoffish. I might come home and if I seen a red light on, I know she was in her room smoking weed. I might not see her all night. I don't look for, I don't ask her for nothing. I knew how to make my own food, come and go as I please, didn't be bothered. I woke up for school on my own. If I get there, I get there. If I don't, I don't. By Friday, her disposition is F me. From Monday through Tuesday, she might've been cool with me. Friday, Saturday is is F you. What you doing in my house? Get out of here. You don't listen to me. You don't follow the rules. Go somewhere else with that. And then if I adapt the disposition of, okay, you right. That's how you feel. All right. Nick's you, too. But now by Sunday, she's looking for me at You know, come on home. Everything is cool. And she was very inconsistent. She was very unstable. It's as if she felt okay with being a parent when she wanted to be a parent. And I think she had a lot of the belief system of as long as you live under my roof, as long as you eat food that's in my refrigerator. And as long as I'm the one paying for water and electricity, then I'm a mom. That's it. The nurturing, the guiding, the supervision, the discipline. She tried the disciplinarian, but it's like, okay, you can only beat me. But then it became, as the beatings had a less effect on me, it was, oh, well, let me whip him with something more than a belt. Let me whip him with a shoe. Let me whip him with a bat. Let me whip him an extension cord. I remember my last beating, I don't know what age I was, but my last beating, she hit me with a bat. And I stood there and I looked at her. I guess the look I gave her was so menacing. She just kind of walked away and was like, she's not going to hit me no more. But my mom was the most consistent person I knew in my life. I couldn't have went to my aunts. I couldn't have went to my uncles. I couldn't have went to my dad. There was nobody else because my mom was the most stable in my life at that time, besides my brother, who was only a year and a half older than me. So we had a parent in the house and my stepdad was around when he wanted to be around. But as parents, they were they were aloof. They were aloof. They were unconcerned. They were the parents that have a cigarette dangling from their lips, but tell you not to smoke. They were the parents that say, man, you out here selling that poison. You ain't supposed to be selling that, you know, selling that dope and stuff living in my house, but then ask me to borrow the keys to my car. Like I remember, one time my mom said to the girlfriend I was dealing with at the time, "Damn, you letting you let mall control you, whatever, buying you stuff." You know, she condemned her as if everything was wrong, but then turned around and asked her to hold the earrings that I just bought the girl because she wanted to wear her big earrings and drive my car. So the inconsistency, along with my belief by that time of what a parent had become she was there, but she wasn't there because from the age of, I would say more so 11 to 16, the only thing that my mind understood was money bring happiness. That's what, that's all I thought in my environment, everything was money. Everything was, if you ain't got no money, shut up. If if you got money, you the man. So when everything became, as long as you got money, you were somebody, all I wanted to do was get money. And then in the street was not only did you have money, but if you was a quote unquote crazy, you got all the respect in the world. So for me, it was that not only am I gonna get money, I'm gonna become a crazy N-I-G-G-A. In my household, it was okay, I wasn't expected to pay bills, but if I leave you a couple hundred dollars and now you pay the bills, you can't tell me to get out. You know, because I'm doing what I want. If I let you hold the keys to my car or I turn around and give you money to do some other stuff. You can't tell me nothing. Because I never looked at it like I'm the man of the house, but I looked at it like I'm the man. Like You can't tell me nothing. I could do what I want. I could buy you. I could buy your cousin, your brother, your uncle. And that became my disposition of arrogance. So the people who were older than me couldn't really tell me nothing. Because I looked at them like, how you going to tell me what I'm supposed to be doing when y'all coming to me to do Mm y'all? So, the power shift, the balance of authority had diminished in my mind i didn't know this back then. All I knew was, okay, yeah, I'm getting money. I ain't got to listen to nobody and being as though i'm I'm crazy with this gun, who gonna stop me So it was almost like n- nobody could tell me what to do. Nobody could stop me, nobody could warn me, nobody because warnings came across to my ears like fear, people saying. Oh, let's see how bad you are when you go to prison. I'm going to be an even crazier person in prison. Like, what you think? I'm going to go, like, I'm just a chump out here. I'm a gangster out here. And if I go there, I'm going to be an even bigger gangster. And that was the mentality. I only built on that mentality until I redefined that mentality.
0: So it's the kind of thing, and you're a parent now, it's the kind of thing that makes you shudder. The idea that as I'm listening to your story, You were lost to them at that point. They could no longer parent you because you had become your own parent. You were it then at that point. So in the absence, we create a void and someone fills it, whether it's the streets or something else. So you're moving along. You're obviously, you know, you're caught out there. You're doing your thing. you don't have to go into like a whole lot of details because obviously there's a lot of madness that's there. But um, you're out there on the streets. And how does it go from just being the man out there to being in case?
2: Before we get to the details, I'm just, the craziness of the case was this. In 89, 90, and 91, I was in the streets unscratched. So imagine nothing really dramatic happening to me other than street stuff. Like, I got stuck up. I had guns pointed to my head, but that was normal. My money just kept going up, kept going up, kept going up. The summer of 92 imagined a Great Depression for me. The summer of 92, there was an attempt on my life. Some guys tried to set me up. Some guys that worked for me, they tried to set me up. They tried to kill me. The only reason they didn't kill me was because they didn't know I had guns on me at the time. I had a big shootout. and I get out of it. But the attempt on my life took my money flow from, let's just say, 10 to 1. Now, I never had really encountered bad aspects of the street life. Everything was just going good for me. And the money was the power for me. It allowed me to do everything. It allowed me to go anywhere. It allowed me to affect whatever circumstance. And as bad things that might have happened to interrupt the money before, nothing ever stopped it until it got stopped. So I started experiencing problems in 92 to 93 that I never experienced before. And I didn't know how to react to that. I didn't know how to respond to the interruption in my flow. So my brother, that's uh, still incarcerated now, he graduated high school in the summer of 92. He went straight to the Army Reserve so they would pay for him to go to college. He came home, October, whatever. He, who was my partner at the time, he got out the game, ain't nothing to do with it. At that time, like I said, it was an attempt on my life. Me responding to that was like, where's my brother? You're not there. Like, you're no longer there for me because now you're doing this college stuff. So I started to resent him a little bit. I started getting mad with him because I'm like, you left me. And as soon as you leave me, now these boys are shooting at me and I'm dealing with drama in a way I never dealt before. The drama kept happening from the end of the summer of 92 all the way up until January 93. By January 93, I lost my cars, one of my cars, because the cops in my neighborhood knew I was 16 years old, but I had a car in my name. They knew it was illegal to begin with. So they wanted me to give up the dealer who did that for me. Long story short, they took the car. My other car, they kept stealing the stereo out of my car. So it was sitting in front of our apartment, grounded. As a 16-year-old kid now, I'm starting to feel like I'm looking in every direction and doors is closed that used to be opened. Mm -hmm. So the night of my case. My conflict with my mother had came to a hilt. February 14th, 1993, we woke up. My brother was home for an, on a weekend pass. Now this is Valentine's Day. He was home on a weekend from Cheney University. He was going back that day. And my disposition towards him was like, man, I'm, I don't even want to talk to you. Get away from me. I ain't really feeling your energy. In his mind, he like, damn, bro, we still solid. You walking around angry all the time, but you know, life's going to get better. We're going to do something different. I couldn't foresee doing something different because for the last five, six months, I'm trying to breathe life back into the streets and it's just not working for me. Every time I try to do what I was used to doing, I kept failing. And I didn't know how to respond to that other than just feeling upset. And then in addition to being upset, now I'm getting shot at on a regular basis. Like I had a couple of shootouts outside my school. So I really ain't even want to go to high school no more. I'm like, damn, man, I go to school. And next thing you know, as I come out, I got to get into a shootout in broad daylight in front of the school. And once it start happening, you know, two times a week and stuff, I'm like, man, I, I can't keep going through that because sooner or later I'm going to get hit. Like I'm not going to keep getting lucky. I'm going to end up getting hit. From one attempt on my life to now was like three and four I became so paranoid that I didn't want to sit in the car. If I came outside the house, I'm looking six times before I take one step. If my little girlfriends are calling me to get together, I didn't want to be bothered with nobody because one, I didn't have the money that I used to have, but everybody still thought I had it or thought I had more. And of course I'm not going to say, yeah, now I'm broke. Or now I'm going through <laughs> tough times and hardships. No, I'm, I'm putting on the bravado. Like, I'm the man. I got all the answers. I got all the solutions. But of course, when nobody's looking, I'm pulling my hair out. I'm like, Yo, what am I going to do? Because I don't know how to salvage the life that I'm living. So back to February 14, 1993, the day this case happened, my brother was heading back to Cheney. And in him trying to calm me down, I was like, man, I really don't want to hear from you. I, I was so disgusted and mad with him just for him wanting to move on. But my mother set me off. She went into the F is you doing in my house? So my response was like, come on, man, we ain't going to keep going through this every couple of days. Like, like, why you keep bothering me? If you don't want me around and cool. And it was, you know, the F you, the, you don't pay the bills. And that time was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back for me. So now I wanted to just lash out. I couldn't put my hands on my mom. So I, I just left. I stormed out the apartment, and I was upset. But when I stormed out the apartment, of course, the first thing I see is my last car that was there on four flat tires, back window busted out, and this time they stole my steering wheel. I was just like, Are "You kidding me?" I came out here to get in my car to get away, like I did most times when we would go through these emotional tug of wars. I just wanted to get away, but I couldn't. I was just mad. So by being mad, I'm just walking around my neighborhood. Now, mind you, it's February 14, 1993. This was the beginning right before the big snowstorm. So it was cold as hell outside. And I'm walking around in a t-shirt. <laughs> I'm walking around in a t-shirt, oh, freezing cold. I'm not cold, though, because I'm, I'm flaming. Like, my mind is mentally, I'm suicidal. This is where my mind was at. I was suicidal, but I wasn't going to kill myself. That's how I felt that day, that moment. I said, I'm going to make somebody shoot me because I ain't killing myself. But I'm so pissed off and frustrated with where life is at right now, I'm done. And that's that's another subject, but I was suicidal. So as I'm walking around, kind of just recklessly looking for some dumb stuff to do, I was recklessly just looking. If I would have seen a cop, I probably would have started shooting at him just so he could shoot at me. I was recklessly looking for stuff to do, but it was Sunday morning. So it wasn't really nobody outside. Few people in church. Uh, it was Sunday morning. I walked around and walked around and walked around. I probably walked around for maybe two hours before I was like, let me just sit down and chill. When I sat down and chilled, it was in the back of my house, the back of our apartment. Our apartment was connected to a parking lot that was connected to a church. So all the people inside was in church. I'm not paying them no mind. I never really paid them no mind because it was a Korean church. It was where the victim of my case, who was Korean. I never seen him before, never met with him before, but I'm sitting on the back wall of our parking lot, kind of just aimlessly looking out. My brother comes out, gives me a coat, and he's telling me, damn, man, I'm about to leave, man. I'm, you know, you're going to be all right. You got to chill, man. Like you, you, you kind of bugging out. And in my mind, I'm like, man, get the F out of here. You, you ain't worried about me no more. You don't care what happened to me. All you cared about is where you going in life and what's happening with you. You ain't part of this street stuff no more. I ain't trying to hear that. So In the midst of us going back and forth, we spoke argumentatively, not about each other, just about what life was for us right now, damn near until the sun went down. And I I never realized that until years later and looking back on it. Like when we was out there first talking, the sun was up. By the time we stopped talking, the sun went down. I happened to look. And when I looked over my shoulder, I seen a car parked against the church wall right by the door. It had smoke coming out the tailpipe. I'm thinking somebody jumped out and ran inside the church and left their car running. So the first thing in my mind was, I'm going to take their car. They left the keys in it. I could see the smoke running from the back. So I start walking towards the car. My brother tried to stop me. He didn't know where I was going yet. I'm like, man, get out of here. I kind of just brushed him. But as I'm walking towards the car, he coming behind me. He like, listen, blood, you you tripping, you you know, slow down, man, you just. But as we're going back and forth, me looking over my shoulder, dismissing him, I'm still walking towards the car. I probably get within two arms distance of the car. The victim jump out, so I never I never knew he was in there, but he jump out. And when he jump out the car, you know, he jump out. Ah! And he spoke Korean. I didn't know he was speaking Korean at that time. I just thought he was jumping out to confront me. By me being angry, as soon as he jumped out, he startled me. So as soon as he startled me, I pulled my gun out. And as soon as I pulled my gun out, my brother tried to stop me, like, ho, ho, Ma, you, you, yo, what are you doing? I'm telling my brother now, because now I'm mad that the man startled me. Like he was just sitting in his car. You know, he must have seen us coming, but in his mind, he's like, damn, how close is they going to actually get to my car? So when he jumped out and start on me, I pull my gun. And when I pull my gun, my brother stepped in front of me to try to chill me out. By this time, I'm so mad at him, I push my brother real hard. Like, man, get the F away from me. You ain't stopping me from this nut stuff I'm about to do. So when I go back towards the Korean man, I'm like, man, give me your car. Like, get out my way. He's protesting. No, 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 no. I don't know this man is protesting because his child was sleeping in the back seat. He had a five-month-old child sleeping in the back seat. I didn't know none of this because the windows was tinted. And I'm thinking he protesting just to like challenge me. I didn't know he was protesting trying to get me to let him get his child out of the car because he was a doctor. He was a doctor. You know, my, my common sense, and especially years later after speaking with his wife, he wasn't going to challenge me. He was just trying to get out my way. But I didn't notice. So as he's protesting, saying, no, 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 I'm thinking he's telling me, no, you ain't taking my car. So now my brother kind of tell him, no, 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 just back up, back up, back up. But he stepped closer to me with the no, 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 And he was louder. And as soon as he did that, I started shooting. Him. As soon as he did that, I started shooting him because I thought he was now protesting. He was going to try to attack me. And I in my mind, I thought that he thought that I was playing. So soon as I start shooting, he fall, My brother is like, you know, he's screaming at me, damn, man, you done done this dumb stuff. But now I just get in the car, like, man, get out of here. I done took it. So what? Now my brother goes around, gets in the car because he's telling me still, like, come on, Ma, you tripping. But soon as my brother opens the door from the passenger side, he says, yo, it's a baby in here. Damn, it's a baby in the car, Ma. And I'm looking and I'm like, what I'm going to do now? It's like, all right, well, I got to figure something out now. So my brother's involvement was simply telling me, man, all right, get out the parking lot. Let's take the baby somewhere. Baby going to get recovered. I'm going to go back to school. You get rid of this car. Man, go somewhere and get out the way. That's how the shooting happened. And that's how my brother became involved in this case. He got in the car. We dropped the baby off 10 miles away at one of his girlfriend's houses in the back. She called the cops. The baby was returned to the, the mom and stuff who was inside the church and by that time found out about her husband. And then me and my brother drove down Jersey because I had a my, my stepdad's son. By that time, he had got all the way out the streets and he was down Jersey. So we drove down Jersey, told him what happened. And he was like, man, you know, of course, he was disappointed at me. But they was by that time, they used to me being the hard head mess up in his mind. It was like, all right, let's just get Rob back to school and you just sit down here. So he took my brother Rob back to Cheney and came back where I was at down Jersey and just sat there with me, like, man, I'll figure out what to do with the car. And you just stay out of trouble. Just sit down here and be cool down Jersey. And I'm like, yeah, I just needed some time to get away. Before I keep going, that's how the case happened. That's how the details of the case. Oh my gosh.
0: And you know, I'm listening to the aftermath and everybody's trying to do cleanup and it's not crossing anybody's mind that you're just digging a deeper hole. With everything that happens, the hole gets deeper and more people get implicated. You get what I'm saying? So yeah. now, because of your anger and your frustration and all the things that led up to that, everyone's trying to figure out how to fix something that is so terribly broken by then. Yeah, and now it's the system's responsibility to figure out who did what and how should you pay? Yep. Now it's not even about any of the other stuff. It's it's all lost in there. Now, this is where we generally come in. Mm-hmm. We hear what happened. We make a determination about how it happened and who you are. And then we watch it all play out and, and people choose sides as to what should then happen. What should the consequences be? How did they catch you? And then what happened after
2: that? I was down Jersey for a week. And by that time, remember, I had already been in the streets for a decent amount of years, although I was only 16 years old. So I knew a place to crush the car. And I was going to get rid of the evidence because I was already used to getting rid of evidence. I knew how to deal with a lot of things in the street. But I got upset with my stepbrother. Instead of me taking the car to go get crushed, I left it in his parking lot, and I told him, you deal with it. But before I told him to deal with it, that night, I took the license plate off of the victim's car, and I switched it with a Jersey license plate. As I was doing that, someone called the cops. They called the cops and say, somebody's out here messing with some of these cars. Now, being my brother was the only 18-year-old Black person that lived in this all-white complex down Cape May, New Jersey. When the cops came, they already had the idea of my stepbrother as the drug dealer. But by this time, he wasn't doing drugs. He wasn't doing the drugs no more. He was working in a hospital. So they already knew, though, it's only one Black person that living in that apartment complex. And he's only 18 years old. So it got to be him. So when they came there, the cops shined the light on the car and all that. And I was literally behind a tree, like, oh, wow, they somehow they didn't caught the car. But they had But what it is, is the cop ran the VIN number and found out this is one of the connection of a homicide all the way in Philadelphia. When that came up, the cop pulled away. In my mind, I knew they pulling away to see who come to that car to then do surveillance. So I had got in my brother's other car, drove from there to another house we had in Weisboro. From Weisboro, I jumped on the bus and went back to Philadelphia. The cops end up probably about four or five hours later raided my brother's apartment because they knew by that time this car is wanted in connection with a homicide in Philadelphia. We already know you couldn't have done it because over a hundred employees at the hospital say you was there. Like we got you on camera before we even came to arrest you, so we know how the hell this car get in your possession because it ain't getting nobody else possession in this complex. You are the only black person here. None of these white people got connections to anything going on in West Philly. My stepbrother. They told him flat out, either you tell us something that we can go off of or you're going somehow going down for this homicide. So he told them, my stepbrothers did this. They came down here, they bought the car. And as soon as he said our names, they spoke with the detectives in the city and the detectives only knew us for drugs. I had been locked up before, but I never did time. My brother, who's still locked up, he had never been locked up. So they didn't even know he existed. Whenever they did raids in our neighborhood, he always got away. He never got arrested. The cops didn't believe my stepbrother, but they had to believe him because when they looked up where we live, they said, wow, this is in connection to where the homicide happened. It has to be them. We have no other leads. They had no other witnesses. They had nothing. When they had my stepbrother in custody, they went to Cheney to question my brother and his role in a homicide. By that time, my stepfather, who I said was on again, off again, and out my life here and there. My stepfather had went down and told the police, he know of everything that happened. If I bring the younger one down here to take the case, will you let, let these two go? Because they had nothing to do with it. One y'all know ain't had nothing to do with it. The other one ain't had nothing to do with it. He's been in college. The cops tell my stepfather, yeah, if you can convince the younger one to come down here and take the case, we just need somebody to admit to doing this homicide. So... My stepfather bring that information to me because the cops didn't try to come lock me up. Found out later on that they didn't really believe that I did the homicide. They thought the older ones did it, but was trying to pin it on me. So long story short, my stepfather come telling me this. Now, I didn't tell y'all because this is an unrelated story. Me and my stepfather, we had a serious at odds. He was behind the first attempt on my life. He was involved with me with the drug thing. He's how I even, I discovered Jersey. And I used to go down Jersey to sell drugs for more than I made in Philly. And long story short, my stepfather wanted to get paid in drugs instead of money. I didn't want to give him drugs because despite him being on drugs, I still loved him. I didn't want to give him drugs. I hated the person he became when he was on drugs. So I didn't want to pay him with drugs. By me not paying him with drugs, he started to feel like, you can't come down here and tell me how to operate. You're still my son. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm a gangster. So you're going to do things my way or no way at all. His beliefs was to go to other drug dealers and tell them about how much money I had and for them to try to set me up and rob me. So then I wouldn't come down Jersey no more. But when he tried to set up things for them to come rob me, it turned into a shootout because they tried to rob me thinking I wasn't gonna have guns on me. So we got into a you know huge shootout, but it all happened because of he put all this in motion. So at this time, when I told my mother after the fact, because a girl from down Jersey I was dealing with ended up telling me. Dan, you know your stepbrother had something to do with them boys trying to get you that night. I tell my mother, don't have him around me no more. Cause if he come up here, I'ma kill him. I'ma kill him. I'ma kill everybody. Cause this dude tried to kill me. He tried to set me up to get killed. All that. So long story short, my stepfather made this deal with the police. And at this time, when he came to see me in the city, he knew where I was at. And when he came up there and tell me, Dan, you know they got you. They went and got robbed. They even though they let Willie go, who was my original stepbrother from Jersey, he said, you know, they told him they won't prosecute and won't charge me if you go down there and take the case. So I knew my brother, Rob, that's still in jail. I knew he didn't do this case. like He was only there because of his connection of trying to stop me from being a knucklehead. I said, "All right, you right? I went down there, told the police who I was, gave a confession saying I did everything. He had nothing to do with it. My stepbrother, Willie, ain't know nothing about it. And they was like, OK, cool. I come to find out eight hours later when they take me through booking, take the photo and all that, I see my brother in the holding cell. So I'm like, what you doing here? And he looking at me like, what happened? How they get you? They catch you? And I'm like, no, I came down here to take the case for them to free you. And he was like, no, bro, they booked me on homicide. Because it turns out that my stepfather had only made a deal for his son. He made a deal to get his biological son totally absolved of all the wrongdoings. If his biological son give a full statement saying how we got down there with the car, what we told them. And we both will go down for the actual homicide. He had me believing that by me being 16 years old, I would only get juvenile life because back then juvenile life was five years. If you go to jail as a juvenile and you get life, then you would get out at the age of 21 if you go to juvenile placement. So he had me believing that, damn, the cops agreed they're going to just give you juvenile life, let both your brothers go. By five years, you come out of jail, you had your life together, you just chill. I'm thinking it sounded correct. So I went and dated confession a whole nine, but it turns out that he had only set up the arrangement. None of this was on paper, but he only set that up to free his biological son because by that time he was still bitter about me and him being on the outs and he wasn't in the best circumstances with my mom. So, you know, he kind of threw me to the wolves and that's how I got arrested.
0: Okay, so oh gosh, it's becoming more and more tragic as it moves forward because now you have your innocent brother. Yeah caught in the madness for, still. For, for lack of, yeah, and still there.
2: Still. Um, is he bitter? If you spoke to him today, you wouldn't extract that from him because he's happy for me. Me and my brother were cellies for the last 10 years of my bid. When I left from Dallas, the place I was at, we was in the cell together. So that morning at 5.45 when I walked out of jail, the last person I hugged and kissed was him. We spent a lot of time together. We did everything together. We spent 10 years separated in prison because we was getting in trouble in there. Like we was still getting into fights and all this stuff. And they separated us, but they put us back together because we behaved for 10 years. And ever since they put us together from 2005 all the way up to 2018, you know, we was we were solid. So he's happy for me, but of course, sad for himself. Yeah, because the only reason I got out of jail had nothing to do with the circumstances of the merit of the case. It was simply because I was a juvenile.
0: So, OK, we now have you out, but we haven't had you in yet. You confessed. It yes. goes to trial
2: by me giving a statement saying I did everything. Mm-hmm. They use that as enough to convict me by my stepbrother, Willie, who got caught with the car saying that me and my brother arrived in that car, then they held and charged my brother as a conspirator, as a co-accomplice. In the laws of Pennsylvania, if you are a conspirator to a homicide, you are as guilty as the person who committed the homicide. Mm -hmm. So I got a first degree life sentence. My brother got a second degree life sentence. That's what happened. And in Pennsylvania, life means life. So even though he wasn't charged with an instrument of crime He still got a life sentence for his connection to me based upon my stepbrother saying this was his role in the case. And he's still in jail.
0: So now you got a first life sentence,
2: a first degree life sentence,
0: plus some extra time, plus a little extra prize inside there. What was
2: the I got convicted of first degree murder. And whenever you get convicted of first degree murder in P.A., you now have to go back to court to see if they're going to give you either life in jail or the death sentence. So a couple days later after getting first degree, I had to go back and sit through another trial process. But this trial process has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It's just the jury determine whether or not they're going to kill you or sentence you to life in jail. So after going through that phase, they determined that they would just give me life in jail two months later, they brought me back in court and told me because I had the charge of kidnapping, the charge of conspiracy, the charge of weapons, the charge of robbery, they were going to individually sentence me to all of these charges to run consecutive, which means if one day they took back just my life sentence, I still would have to do 15 to 40 more years. So they gave me the life plus 15 to 40. And then upon coming up state. The DOC, Department of Correction, decided that I should spend some time on death row because death row is more so isolation. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same as the whole where you just lock down 24 hours a day. So that was decided that I should spend some time on death way until I earned my right into population. That's where I sat there for a few uh, a few years.
0: From how old to how old were you on okay. death
2: row? I got locked up at 16. I stayed in the county jails until I turned 18. They didn't take me to actual trial until I turned 18. The first jail I went to was the Youth Studies Center. I stayed in there till I was 17. Then they sent me to the House of Correction. I stayed there from when I was 17 to 18. Once I turned 18, they took me to trial, sentenced me as an adult, and I was sent to Holmesburg prison. From Holmesburg prison, I went upstate now from the county jails to the state jails, the Camp Hill prison. From Camp Hill prison, I was sent to Cole Township. So for that was from 18 years old to 19, because I was only in Cole Township for a little while. And from Camp Hill to Cole Township, from Cole Township to Dallas, I did the majority of my time at Dallas. From Camp Hill was the time period that I sat in death row.
0: At 18 years old.
2: Yeah, that was at 18.
0: So you celebrated your 21st birthday there?
2: where was I? No, I was at Dallas by that time. I was at Dallas. I made it out of the hole. And soon after I made it out of the hole, I went to Cole Township. Up Cole Township, I was involved in a riot, not directly involved. So I didn't get the penalties and consequences of it. But when a riot happens in jail, if you wasn't already in your cell and it's proof you was locked in your cell, you're getting in trouble for being a part of the riot. So I wasn't actively a part of a lot of the melee that came with the riot. But um, I got caught up in it to the point that Cole Township put me in a hole. And when they put me in the hole, they kept me in a hole for six and a half months again. But then they uh, separated me and my brother. So I went from there to Dallas. I was only in a hole at Dallas for probably a month or so. And they let me out of population. So I was 21. I was 21 when I was in Dallas, but by that time they had separated me and my brother. They sent him to Rockview and they sent me to Dallas. So, yeah, I was 21.
1: So what was your, because this is, this whole story is, you know, this stuff that they, they now make for entertainment on stars and Netflix and Hulu and and people tune in and, and they, you know, have, you know, they quote, love these characters that, you know, people who are going through this experience Um, And sometimes we kind of, you know, we forget that there are real life experiences of these people. You know, it's not just tuning in every Mm -hmm. week that there are, you know, consequences and feelings. Where was your mindset when you were on death row? Where where were you? What was your mind? Were you bitter? Were you angry? Were you just complacent?
2: Anger. Anger was the number one. It was the most dominant feeling in my mind and the anger came from the ignorance the anger came from believing somebody else was responsible for me the anger come from believing my life was supposed to be different and it wasn't because of what whomever else wasn't doing the first time i went to the hole it didn't dawn on me the second time i went to the hole i didn't dawn i was in a hole in 1996 in the middle of a snowstorm, when it finally hit me. And I remember it because the light bulb literally went off. I'm sitting inside the hole, and I'm sitting on a table looking out the window, and all you could see is snow. And snow had almost taken up half the window. And at that time is when it first dawned on me that if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to keep getting what I got. That's the very first time that I realized I was at fault. I'm the one that's doing this to my life. I'm the one that's doing stupid stuff, nut stuff. Like my slang always was, you know, nut stuff. There's nut shit. All the way up until then, I never attributed the nut stuff to myself. That was the first time it settled in. I had almost three and a half years upstate after the conviction before it actually settled in that I got to change my mindset. I got to change the way I'm operating. I got to change the way I'm thinking. That's when it began. It was 96. It was the beginning of the year in 96. And I was in a hole. So I knew when I got out the hole, I was just going to start trying to do things a little bit different.
0: I think that's a really good place for us to put a cap in it and come back. In our next episode, we're going to start this story where it really starts. Right. Like it's where it really gets good. It's the moment of realization. It's that moment that we all have. We're at the bottom of the hole in the belly of the beast. And we go, you know what? There's got to be another way. Enough is enough. And it starts with me. So we're going to pick this back up. Um, we're going to pick this back up next week and we hope you will tune in to hear part two of this interview with Jamal and his book again is The Transition Education Over Ignorance. Jamal Allen will have this information on our website, but to hear the rest of this story because this is the transition. This is the moment of transition next week on Real Talk with Deb and Nia. So again, this will be on the website.
1: www.realtalkwithdebandnia.com. And also remember to click subscribe because you don't want to miss out on our the next part. Or We're any all... other episode. <laughs> or any other episode. But Thanks. that is where the goodies are going to come. So yeah, be sure to click that subscribe button. Also make sure to like and follow us on our social medias at Real Talk DN. Leave a review. Let us know how we're doing. We love to hear it. We love your suggestions. Yeah, we just love it. So uh, thank you so much for coming.
0: We'll be back next week with part two. Jamal Allen, The Transition. Thanks for joining us. Real Talk with Deb and Nia can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Podcasts. You can also check out our YouTube channel.
1: And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at RealTalkDN. See you next time! time.